So I'm going to pray you guys really agree with me. Father, we, we lift up this time of getting into the Word. And it's so important. We've got to be anchored in the Word. We've got to really um, study the show ourselves approved. Know the Word. Rightly dividing the Word of Truth. And Lord, as we get into this time, we, we unify together as a church. And we pray over the Word. And I pray that as we come before you tonight, that you would anoint me and speak through me your words of truth. And that your word will go out as living seeds of truth. The parable of the seed and the sower to be living seeds of truth. What you're speaking, a rainbow word, and it will go out into good soil of hearts and minds and lives that are prepared by the Holy Spirit. That even now, the Holy Spirit would brood over every listener and really just captivate everybody to give us the grace to give you our best ear, our full attention, and that we will be good soil. And Lord, I pray your word really get in us and be watered by the Spirit, take root, grow, and produce a hundredfold harvest of eternal fruit that remains. Lord, we ask you to anoint our eyes and our ears. Give us eyes and ears of the Spirit. Lord, I pray a grace to anoint our hearts and minds, Lord, that we will be able to understand. Lord, I pray grant us understanding out of your word tonight. And let your word go out, Lord, as a hammer that's going to break down every stronghold. Let it go out as living water that's going to cleanse everything. Let it go out as light that's going to dispel all the darkness and bring truth. And Lord, let everything be accomplished in and through this time of the word that your will to be done. We bless you, Lord, and I thank you for it right now. And Lord, we bind the enemy. The Bible says the birds of the air try to steal the word so we bind up anything of the enemy that would try to hinder this right now we agree together that it is bound in the name of Jesus we break its power but let the winds of your spirit carry this everywhere it needs to go and that you would watch over it for you said you would you're careful to watch over your word and perform it and the Bible says it won't return void but it will accomplish that which you sent it for to do so we believe that and we expect it now in Jesus name we pray this amen all right thank you guys for praying um, let's go ahead and dive into this. This is part three on doctrines of demons. And what I have noticed is, is that God has really been anointing. Um, whenever I've done these type of sermons, I have felt a tremendous anointing. I have felt a tremendous anointing during the, the first two that I've done. But even in the past, when I've done sermons that dealt with deception and mixture and how God loves purity and cleaning house and all that, I have always felt an exceptional anointing, and I feel that here tonight as well. So, how many of you guys know that there can be a mixture? There can be truth that's preached, but there can also be error, and there can be a mixture in the Word. And the Bible talks about in the Old Testament not to mix the seed. So whenever you were sowing seed in a field, he said not to mix the seed. Don't put wheat and corn together. Um, God's always hated mixture. And so the seed of God's word needs to be as pure. And I understand that, that we're human and we certainly we're all doing our best. But it's very important that we really pray for wisdom and do our best to keep God's word preached like it is. Preach the truth. Unfiltered. We're not going to try to water down for anybody. We're not going to try to people please. We're just going to preach the truth. It's going to be pure. Okay. Also there can be a mixture and I think I've dealt with this. A mixture of spirits where you can have an anointing of the Holy Spirit to some degree because when you're anointed you're anointed um, the gifts at work but there can also be strange spirits at work in the same place it, you know the devil wants to bring as much mixture as he can and it's got to be our responsibility especially as leaders to make sure that we take a stand that we're going to try the spirits we're going to make sure and discern what's of God and what's not and keep out what needs to be kept out and everything to really be pure, okay? So with that in mind, y'all give me your best ear tonight. This sermon is going to be exceptionally important, I believe, in the days to come. So Proverbs 14, verse 12. There is a way which seems right to man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. I want you to think about what I'm saying. Because a lot of times, I'm going to deal with the institutionalized church, a lot of things can be man. It's man's opinion. It's man's traditions. It's man's politics. Man raised up man. Man's in control. And it's man's human intellect and wisdom. It's not really inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's all man. But here's the problem. 
There is a way that seems right to man, but the end thereof is death. And I think that all of us can look out and see a lot of things that used to be alive and that man took over and are now dead. You hear what I'm saying? And so I'm going to do my best to bring this word tonight. And as we go, I think it will make more sense. But Revelation 2 verse 4, I'm just going to lay down some groundwork here. The Lord was speaking to the church here. And he said, I have this against you that you have left or forsaken your first love. It's interesting because in the Greek, if you study that phrase, first love translates supreme love feast. So it seems to imply like maybe the communion table. But nonetheless, there was some kind of a first love. And this was to the church at Ephesus. And anybody that studied this out knows that the seven churches can be seen symbolically as the down through the ages. Okay, The church of Ephesus was the early church and the church of Laodicea is the last day church. It's the last one mentioned. And it's an interesting study, but it's a timeline down through the last 2,000 years. So this church, the Lord is rebuking them saying, you know, Ephesus, the second time Paul went there, he had the greatest move of God of his whole ministry that we know of. It's recorded in Acts 19. He stayed for two years because the Holy Spirit was moving so powerful. The whole province, that whole region heard the gospel. The Bible says that all these witches and people that were practitioners of the occult brought their, their materials, their paraphernalia, and burned them publicly. And it was, it was worth a lot of money. And there were so many miracles. There were even extraordinary miracles where people, because back then it was very difficult to travel long distances if you were sick or something. So people were bringing like handkerchiefs and aprons that would, while Paul would pray over them or whatever, they would send them back. And all these miracles were happening. You know, they'd go back and lay the handkerchief on a crippled, and they'd get up and walk. They'd put it on somebody who was demon-possessed, the demon would leave them. So God was moving in an exceptional way, and this was the beginning. This was how the church of Ephesus was born, was during Paul's ministry in revival. You understand, when you read Acts 19, these are the people that were there. They saw the miracles. And then Paul later writes to them the, the epistle of the Ephesians that we read about where he talked about the armor of God, spiritual warfare, making sure your home's in order, things like that. So this was the church Jesus is speaking to. They started in revival, but we know that down through the ages, around 300, which I'm going to get to later, um, you know, they lost their first love, so to speak, okay? But he said, therefore, remember from where you've fallen and repent. And do the deeds as you did at first, or else I will come to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Now, this is a very concerning warning. Because if you read the book of Revelation, the lampstands were symbols of the church. And so, for example, River of Life would be seen as a lampstand. And the Lord wants us that the, there's fresh oil in this lampstand that the fire is burning bright, all of that. There's light of truth. But we're seen as lampstands, and the Lord says, if you don't repent, I'm going to remove your lampstand. Now that right there is concerning, because what the Lord is saying here is, if I could paraphrase it, you may keep meeting together, and you may have a little social club, but my presence will be removed, and your status as a legitimate church will be removed. Now, I want you to remember what I'm saying here because it's all going to tie together as we go. There's places that they, they may meet together and they may have a sign over it that says first such and such church or whatever. And they may meet together weekly or whatever, but there's no presence of God. In some of these places, their lampstand was removed a long time ago. They're, they don't hold the status of a legitimate church as far as God sees it. Where's the fivefold ministry? Where's the presence and power of God in their midst? Where's the miracles? You see what I'm saying? Something was removed a long time ago. Or maybe it was birthed by man and it never had that status to begin with. Revelation 3, 15. 
Now this is the last day church, the church of Laodicea. This is the age we're living in. He said, I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either cold or hot. That reminds me of when Elijah stood up and rebuked the prophets of Baal and all the people that were present. Choose this day whom you're going to serve, he said. If Baal's God, then worship Baal. If God be God, worship him. But you quit riding the fence and pick. And I need to see the same thing right here. You're either going to be hot or you're going to be cold. Quit riding the fence. Make a decision. But he said, because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit or literally in the Greek vomit you out of my mouth. It makes him nauseous. Because you say about yourself, you say, I'm rich, I've become wealthy, I need nothing. But you do not know that you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Now how many knows that Jesus sees things about us we don't see? It's so important to be humble and say, Lord, test me and try me. Help me to see what I need to see. Lord, anoint my eyes and cleanse my life. Because if we stay like that, the Lord can deal with us. But see, they were in a place of pride and they were saying about themselves, I'm wealthy, I'm in need of nothing, I'm good, I am fine like I am. See, that's pride right there. But Jesus said, no, you're not. You're wretched and miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And he said, I advise you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you'll be rich. Gold refined in the fire is where God purifies us. And white garments so you can clothe yourselves. In other words, that God washed away all the filth and really put on us righteousness, that we become truly righteous. And... The shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And look at this, eye salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. That God would anoint our eyes so that we can see what we couldn't see before. How many knows when Jesus anoints your eyes, you're going to begin to see things about yourself and about, you know, whether it be the kingdom of God or whatever, you're going to begin to see things that you could absolutely never see before. So it is incredibly important that we stay humble. There's probably very little deception in the earth that did not find its way through pride. People, a lot of times, they kind of have a propensity toward pridefulness. They have a tendency toward that. A lot of times, they have a tendency also to have deception in their life. All right. Well, let me shift to something else, and then I'm going to bring it together. So I want you to picture for a moment kind of like a a cosmic chess match. I don't know if any of you play chess or whatever. I really don't. But I know how it works enough to to use this as an illustration. But one player is going to move their piece and then the other player is going to calculate and make a move. And this is the way the enemy has been doing for a long time. Now I want you to follow me just for a moment. The earth was in, this, was, this is going to be a rabbit trail that I'm not going to go down, but you're just going to have to just follow me with this. But the earth was in some kind of a condition that happened before Adam. We don't know a lot about The Bible's not real clear. But God comes on the scene, and he begins to, um, you know, the sun, moon, and stars come on, the, the waters separate from land, and God creates this beautiful garden, the Garden of Eden. And God fixes the earth back up. He creates mankind and he speaks over it, it's good, he blesses it. And so this is a move of God upon an earth that was in some kind of a destroyed or some kind of a dark, chaotic place from something that happened before we know a lot about. But as God creates man in his image and puts man in the garden, we know that Satan began to strategize. See, that was God's move. Satan began to strategize how he was going to counter that. And so Satan was on the earth, obviously, and he's studying Adam and Eve. He's studying their relationship. He's studying their habits. He knows when they eat. He knows their vulnerable places. And so over time, he starts realizing if he was going to target one of them, he needed to target Eve. And I'm sure that since he tempted her with food, he waited till she was hungry. And without getting into a whole lot of detail there, Satan countered that move and Eve fell into deception. 
And Adam went with her. Anyway, that was a move of the devil to counter that. All right, then, then the Lord predicts. Eve has fallen, but God predicts to them that there's going to be a Savior that comes from the woman. And God told her, yes, through, there's going to be a lot of pain involved in, in childbearing, but from the seed, he said, from a woman is going to come a Savior, basically. I'm paraphrasing. And though the serpent may strike his heel, he's going to crush the head of the serpent. And it was a prophecy of the coming of Jesus to the earth. Well, Satan does not have any idea when this is going to happen. And so as soon as, as Adam and Eve come together, and out of her comes you know, Cain and Abel, Satan is studying that situation, and he's very concerned because he sees Abel as righteous. He's very concerned that Abel might be the one that's going to crush his head. So he makes sure that Abel's killed. You follow me? He realizes, though, through that, that God is still at work. And he knew that there was a coming Messiah, and it was going to come through the human race. And so we read about, in Genesis 6, and those that haven't studied this, it may sound crazy to you at first, but this is in the Bible, it's what happened. But Satan decides he's going to try to pollute the human race. And so once again, you see like this chess move where he has these fallen angels come down and they begin to cohabitate and, and, and have relations with the women and through that produce what the Bible calls the Nephilim. And some of them were giants, etc. But it was the human race, the human DNA being polluted with the angelic, with the fallen angelic. And so God was very grieved because the earth was so wicked in these days. And you can only imagine what these fallen angels had brought down with them. I mean, think about the level of witchcraft and the occult that would have been widespread and pervasive. Imagine all the sexual perversions, you see. And the violence, the Bible is very clear, there's a lot of violence. So God was very grieved, but he saw Noah. And it says about Noah, it says that he was perfect in his generations or his blood. His DNA was untainted by these fallen angels. So him, his wife, his sons, their wives, eight total. God told them to build an ark, and we know the story. So God cleans, purges the earth. Now let's shift, because I'm just trying to show you how God does something, and then the devil tries to do something. All right. Now let's switch over real quick to the Hanukkah story, something totally different. But I want you to see here and this is going to connect with some other examples. See, Satan somehow, I don't know how, but he kind of knows when something is up. Do you remember when Moses was born? Nobody went through Egypt shouting, you know, there's a great Savior that has been born to the, you know, to the Israelites. and Nobody was doing it, but yet Satan knew that something was up, and he stirred up Pharaoh to throw all these Jewish baby boys into the Nile to be eaten by crocodiles. He was trying to kill Moses, but he didn't even know what he was doing. It was, it was Satan using him. Do you remember when Jesus came and the, the Magi came? Do you remember? And Herod something stirred up Herod to have all those babies slaughtered. What was he trying to do? The devil, through Herod, was trying to kill Jesus. But he missed Moses and he missed Jesus. Because God protected him. Somehow Satan knows when things are up. Like God's moving, something's going on. And it's interesting because the Hanukkah story, we would not have a Christmas story of Jesus being born without their first 167 years prior to that being a Hanukkah story. But in that time, the Greeks were trying to force Israel to do away with anything to do with God's word, going to church, doing what they're supposed to be doing, anything like that at all. The Greeks were trying to force the Jewish people to reject their faith completely and basically become 
Greeks. Does this make sense? And so Satan really persecuted. But during that time, if, if that had been accomplished, the temple, that time Antiochus Epiphanes had killed a pig on the altar, and the temple had been defiled, and if the devil had his way and totally got the Jewish people to just become Greek and to assimilate into Greek society, what would, it, what would have been the result of that? There would not have been any way for Jesus to be birthed into the Jewish people. You see what I'm saying? Because they would have been assimilated. So Satan was trying to pervert things. Are y'all following me? In the same way, I'm going to give you something here in just a moment. Let me say something, then I'm going to come right back to that. We know that if Satan cannot stop something, he will try to pollute it. So I'm going to come back to that. Now, when I preach on this tonight, I want you to hear me, because I want this to be really clear. I want everybody to look this way and hear me. We're coming against some kind of an institutionalized man-made thing, a hybrid, which I'm going to explain. We're coming against that, but we're not coming against people. In other words, you know, whether it be Roman Catholicism, whether it be an institutionalized church over here, or whatever, we're not against people. And we love everybody, and they're welcome to come here and receive from the Lord. So you better be real careful, because sometimes you preach along these lines, and baby Christians that don't know any better, they get a bad spirit about them, and they get weird. We're not against people, but we're against something that's counterfeit. Okay, This will make sense as I go. So what I'm coming against in my sermon is not really individual people at all. What I'm coming against, let me make it clear, is man-made. Everybody say man-made. Man-made institutions. Not against individual people within these institutions. But what I'm talking about that I have a problem with, God has a problem with, the Word has a problem with, is man's control, man's politics, man's pet doctrines, traditions of men, human wisdom, it's all man. And the Bible says that there's a way that seems right to man, but the end thereof is death. Alright, so let me, let me give you a little bit and then we'll come back to this. So, for the first 300 years, the church was in a great, what we would consider a great revival. I mean, it was birthed in the fires of revival. You remember the Bible talked about Peter's shadow healing the sick. The early church saw all kinds of miracles. It was very powerful. So this was going on for about 300 years. And what you have to understand is that the devil wanted to try to destroy this church. Just like he tried to kill Moses and kill Jesus, he raised up, Satan used 10 Roman emperors over a 300 year period from Nero to Diocletian that tried to systematically kill every living Christian. They had, during those days, Christians were dipped in oil, hung on sticks, set on fire. They were put in coliseums and eaten publicly by animals like lions. Um, the Roman soldiers went in and just killed and slaughtered Christians. So this was a horrible massacre. But even though Satan was doing his absolute best to destroy the Christian church, persecution only made the church stronger. And so after 300 years, the devil realizes he's not going to be able to destroy the church. So now he's thinking to himself, I've got to come up with some kind of a strategy though. So instead of trying to destroy them, now he tries a completely different strategy, trying to pervert the church. Bring deception, bring mixture. Create some kind of a hybrid So at this time, there was a Roman emperor by the name of Constantine who felt that, you know, he had seen some kind of a vision. And so he, you know, began to be favorable toward Christians 
And so for the first time in these 300 years, Christians could live at peace. But the problem was that this Roman emperor decided he needed to set himself up over the church and become like the first pope, if you will. And so this Roman emperor, listen to what I'm saying. He was still going to pagan temples and participating in the satanic rituals to those demon gods of Rome. But then he was coming back and officiating these so-called Christian services too. This was the birth of Roman Catholicism. A lot of true Christians were very relieved that the persecution stopped. But as they began to see things emerge and they began to see the fruit of this, many of them began to point at it and say, that's like the world. That's not true Christianity. Are you hearing me? And so over time, through this move to create some kind of a hybrid, listen to what happened. The gospel of Jesus Christ was replaced with being right with a church. I want you all to hear me real clear. This right here is the biggest problem with the institutionalized church is the fact that they do away with the gospel. And it becomes about church membership. It becomes about doing what they say do and don't do what they say don't. And through that, you'll get into heaven. I hope y'all are hearing me tonight because this is a major deception. And this isn't linked to any one group of people that has one label. This is pretty much widespread. Even in Protestantism, it's the same thing. Where people feel, hey, well, I went to church. I filled out the visitor card. I joined I give, I do this, I do that, and I quit doing this, and I quit doing that. And they feel, because of all of that, that somehow through that church, they're going to be in heaven one day. That's not the gospel. The gospel has got to be a personal thing, where you have a new birth. You look to Christ, and you're born again. Your sins are washed away. That has really nothing to do with the church. That has to do with a personal new birth, you come into covenant with God. But this is what happened. It started in 300 AD, but as Roman Catholicism began to form, there began to be this oppression. It very much became something that the gospel was snuffed out. And that's why in 1517, Martin Luther was a German monk. That's why God had to use him to split off Roman Catholicism. And what was his message? We are saved by grace through faith. Alright. Here's some other things. The focus went off of the home and went on to a building. For 300 years, the church... I want you all to hear this because this is going to blow some people's minds. But for 300 years, the church was meeting in homes. They had home fellowships. When Constantine came to power, they had so much wealth, they began to build these real elaborate cathedrals and things for Christians to worship in. And no longer, all of a sudden now, because before that, for the 300 years, there was such an influence of the Hebrew roots that people had a real influence, uh, I'm sorry, a real emphasis on the home. The husband would teach his family the Bible, they would pray together. Their home was a little sanctuary, a little church. That came from the Hebrew roots, the Hebrew culture. But now, once this hybrid thing began to emerge, this institutionalized church, it got away from that, and it got a focus on a building. That people come to a building and they sit. It's You see how the personal relationship is being done away with? And it's like letting the clergy have a relationship for you instead of you having a relationship with the Lord personally. Things like the communion table in homes was done away with. You had to do that now at church alone. A lot of things were, you know, the worship and the prayer that was going on in homes was done away with. And Jesus warned about this. The clergy went from being humble servants to dominating in like a strong control. Okay? Let me say that again. The clergy 
went from being humble servants to dominating, to controlling. And that's what the Bible talked about with the Nicolaitans. Nicolaitans, if y'all look this way, please. Nicolaitans, Nico means to rule over, Latians, the laity. So now, instead of people meeting in homes and it was being a humble servant, now you're having clergy that it's becoming, over time, illegal for you to own a Bible or read the Bible yourself. You had to have them do it for you. You could not take communion at home. They had to administer it. Everything became about the clergy ruling over the people like that. You see what I'm saying? And as this began to happen, strange idols and strange doctrines begin to be introduced. As I've wondered, and I'm sure you have too, when you look at just basically, even if you don't know a lot of the Bible, everybody has at least heard the Ten Commandments for the most part. And what's the first thing in the Ten Commandments? Not to make a graven image and not to bow down and worship a graven image. And so you're sitting here looking sometimes at whether it be Roman Catholicism or others, and you're seeing the clergy create a graven image and bow down and worship it, and you're going, how do they get around that? But it's because, here's the problem. At some point in time, this is, this is fact, you can look this up. At some point in time, the doctrine shifted to where now the clergy felt that they were superior to God's word. And that's where you got strange doctrines. Does everybody hear what I'm saying? Because this is important. Every one of us have to submit ourselves under what the Bible says. You cannot set yourself above the word and then create these strange doctrines. And that's how things like the worship of Mary and all this weird stuff and idols and all this got in because the clergy began to allow it to come in. And then, as this entity, this institutionalized church came into full power, so to speak, what did they begin to do? Anybody that disagreed with them that said, well, well, now wait a second. We don't agree with bowing down and worshiping idols. Anybody that disagreed with them, they would now try to hunt them down and murder them in cold blood. They would be in prison. They would be tortured. They would be burned at the stake. It was a major move of intimidation to control people. Control them by total fear. Now, I'm saying this just so that you'll know the reason why I teach a lot along these lines, because a lot of Bible teachers, and I'm not talking about one or two, a lot of Bible scholars that studied the last days, they've studied Revelation, Daniel, etc., and me included, feel that it's a strong possibility that the false prophet and the false church, that the Vatican could have a lot to do with that. Okay, so just keep that in mind, because there's a lot of Bible scholars that believe that. Now, Revelation 17 may have a lot to do with the Vatican. And so, for a long time, this isn't anything new, the Vatican has been working to bring all religions together. The Pope and others have had um, Islamic and Buddhist and other people come and pray with them, and they've been in this ecumenical movement for a long time. That's a whole other rabbit trail I'm not going to go down. So, God has historically... Now, I said all that to give you... I wanted to paint a picture... I want you all to really hear this because this is very concerning to me. Because you even see where certain groups of people were birthed in the fires of revival. And God was doing a tremendous work like he did with the Ephesians. And it started out a certain way. But at some point in time, it became something that was just man. Man's control, man's politics, man's wisdom. What man can do. At some point in time, the lampstand was removed. And it's like some kind of a darkness, some kind of a sterility creeps in. And now people, by and large, feel that they can just simply join this institutionalized church and based on their membership, they're going to heaven. Now let me tell you a story. There's a man by the name of Derek Prince died back in, I believe, 2003, if I'm not mistaken. He was a great Bible teacher. 
And he was saying that, you know, he grew up a good Anglican. He grew up doing everything he was supposed to do. He was, he was born into the Church of England, and he did all the do's, and he didn't do all the don'ts. And as far as the Anglican Church was concerned, he was a good little Christian boy. But we, when he went into the military, see, this whole time he felt that he was a Christian. But as he got older, he began to be more disenfranchised with things. And out of his own personal frustrations with life, he began to be in, you know, studying uh, things like philosophy and stuff. But he ended up in the military, and while he was in the military, he began to read the Bible, and he had a major encounter with God, and he experienced a new birth. Now, I want you to hear another story. How many of you guys ever heard of a man by the name of John Wesley? Everybody, anybody heard that name? Okay. Well, John Wesley, same thing. John Wesley grew up, his mother was an incredible woman, and, you know, he had several siblings, but he grew up hearing the Bible, he grew up in church, he went to church all the time, he did all the do's you were supposed to do, and he didn't do the don'ts you weren't supposed to do. Everything was, if anybody would have asked him, yes, I'm a Christian, no doubt about it, he felt, because he was a part of this institutionalized church, that he was on his way to heaven. But he was on a boat, and this boat began to look like it was going to sink. And there were some Moravian missionaries. Now, the Moravians were a group of people. There was a very wealthy man named Count Zinzendorf that owned a large plot of land. These were refugees from another country that came. And Count Zinzendorf allowed them to live there. And he was a godly Christian, and they began to have a lot of infighting. So he went in there and said, look, guys, we're going to have to get... Make a long story short, that the Moravians began to have prayer night and day. And this went on, guys, for 100 years. This is a major prayer movement. But anyway, they began to send missionaries out. And so it just so happens on this boat with John Wesley, a couple of Moravian missionaries... The boat looks like it's going to sink. And John Wesley is scared to death. We're going to die today. You know, he's scared. And he looks over at the Moravians and they were calm. And so he says, How can you be so calm when we're about to die? And they begin to explain to him because they knew that they were born again. And if they were to die, they would go to be with Jesus. And as they were telling him that, he realized he had no assurance whatsoever of that. So in other words, he was a part of an institutionalized church. He was a very religious man, but he was not born again. So the Moravians had such an influence on him. He accepts the Lord, and he writes in his journals, he said, my heart began to be strangely warmed. as the first move of God in his life. And so Wesley begins to talk about this experience and he begins to preach along these lines. Well, here's the problem. The institutionalized church of that day didn't want to hear what he had to preach and persecuted it. He even had a church that his father years ago pastored. There was another pastor there now, but his father pastored this church. He was in that church, a part of it for years they would not even let him preach in their pulpit because his message didn't line up with their little institutionalized church doctrine. He was preaching about a new birth. He was preaching about having an encounter with God. All right, so what did Wesley do? Wesley, every, you know, some people say, well, why did Wesley preach in the streets all the time? Because he couldn't preach in the churches. They ran him off. So God historically has had to circumvent the institutionalized church to move with great power. Let me say that again. Historically, God has had to circumvent the institutionalized church because it was not a wineskin he could pour into. He had to go around that and find people that he could move with great power. 
And as John Wesley and his brother yielded to the Holy Spirit, God sent a great awakening here. It affected England. They came over here. It affected here. Um, at the same time, God raised up George Whitfield. But they were preaching outside of the institutionalized church. Down through the centuries, if you look from 300 AD till now, down through the centuries, when, the, when Roman Catholicism was in great power, you had people like John Wycliffe. And you guys remember hearing about Wycliffe? Man, Roman Catholicism hated that man. Now, they hated, they wanted to murder him. They hated, hated him. They hated him so bad that after he had been dead for a long time, they went and dug up his bones and cursed him. That's how much they hated that man. That's a true story. But his followers were known as the Lollards. And what was their message? They would evangelize. And they would talk about a relationship with Jesus. And they would talk about you know, a new birth. That was their message. And, and they, God had to use them outside of the institutionalized church. Being persecuted by the institutionalized church. Of course that greatly influenced a man by the name of John Huss who really loved the Lord with all of his heart and became a great martyr. He was burned at the stake because he accepted Christ as his Savior, basically. Roman Catholicism hunted him down and murdered him. The Waldensians, same thing. All right, so let me skip past this. So I want you to see that Satan tried to attack and he tried to kill the church for 300 years. He used these wicked emperors, Roman emperors, to try to snuff it out. But everything he did never worked. The church kept getting stronger. Persecution made it stronger. And it kept moving along. But at some point in time, the devil realizes, I've got to change my strategy. And so he goes from, from a direct trying to destroy them. Now he's moving into something where he could create like a hybrid. Some kind of a counterfeit. Is all this making sense tonight? So let me close out with a couple things here. The true church of Jesus Christ was birthed on the day of Pentecost. And how was the church birthed? By the Holy Spirit in their midst. Is everybody hearing what I'm saying tonight? It was not church membership. It was not about just do this, don't do that. It wasn't about religious institutions. It was about the spirit of the living God invading that place and invading those people. Jesus told them, he said, you go wait in Jerusalem until you be clothed with power from on high. Jesus was basically saying, if I could paraphrase it like this, I didn't even start my ministry until I was baptized by John and the Holy Spirit came on me. He's saying, you go wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Then you'll be my witnesses. It'll start here in Jerusalem. It'll go to Judea. It'll end up going to Samaria and into the ends of the earth. And we know, you remember about Philip going to Samaria? And then you remember how Paul and others took it to the ends of the earth? Jesus' prophecy was fulfilled. But my point is, it began by the Holy Spirit. And every major move that's happened over the last 2,000 years for God to restore what the devil stolen or whatever needed to happen, it has always been by the power of the Holy Spirit that that took place. It was not man's wisdom. It was not an institutionalized church. It was by the Spirit of God. I can give you one example how the devil through the institutionalized church had persecuted so much the gospel had been snuffed out. So you know what? There was also no more tongues. But around 1900, the Holy Spirit began to move. In Topeka, Kansas, Charles Parham, there began to be a move of God. There was a young lady, Agnes, I can't remember her name exactly, but she spoke in tongues. And man, they were praying for another Pentecost. And God began to move in their midst. And William Seymour heard about this. And it just, something in Seymour was so hungry for more. And he used to sit outside because it was the days of segregation. He used to sit outside and listen to Parham teach. Anyway, he ended up in Louise, in, in the, on the Sousa Street area, in the Bonnie Bray Street. And 
God began to move what with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, restored through the Azusa Street Revival the baptism in the Holy Spirit, speaking in tongues and the gifts back to the church that had been stolen. In every revival, God has been restoring back. You see, during the days of the 40s and 50s, healing and deliverance began to be restored back. You saw in the 80s, you know, the apostolic, the fivefold ministry, the 90s, great, man, such a great revival in the 90s, etc. I could go on and on, but God, by His Spirit, has been restoring back everything to the church. And the Bible says heaven must receive Jesus until the restoration of all things. And we're living in the days of the former and latter reigns. We're living in the days, the Bible says there would be a great outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And I'm thankful to be living in these days because God is pouring out His Spirit on all flesh. And you know what? He's bringing in a last day harvest. And what concerns me though is Revelation 18 is I've been preaching in my mind I've been thinking about the harlot church. I've been thinking about these institutionalized churches. Did you know that some of these institutionalized churches now are beginning to formally accept things like this homosexual clergy they're beginning to be favorable toward abortion, etc. See, once that lampstand is removed, what happens? The darkness starts setting in. Deception comes in. Idols come in. And the institutionalized churches that are just man-made, unfortunately, I believe many of them will align themselves with this last-day harlot church that will be very ecumenical. It's going to be worshiping with Buddhists and Muslims and Hindus and all these other weird things. And there's going to be this unholy blend and this mentality that many roads lead to God. Jesus isn't the only way. And many other holy books other than the Bible. You hear what I'm saying? That's, in my opinion, that's going to be where this thing is going. And that right there is going to be what the false prophet sits over. And that's what's going to make the way for the rise of the Antichrist. Now I'm preaching this way because I'm talking about doctrines of demons. God is wanting a purity. He's wanting the pure gospel preached. He's wanting his word preached. And he's wanting a true church where the fivefold ministry is in operation. His presence is among us. His word is really being preached and the power of his spirit is at work. Alright, so let me close with this. Cleansing out the yeast. Matthew 16, verse 5. And the disciples came to the other side of the sea, but they had forgotten to bring any bread. And Jesus said to them, Watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began to discuss this among themselves, saying, He said that because we forgot to bring bread. <laughs> but Jesus, aware of this, said, You men of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves that we don't have any bread? Do you not remember the five loaves feeding the 5,000? How many baskets did you pick up? Do you all remember there was 12? Or the seven loaves and the 4,000? How many baskets did you pick up? How is it that you're thinking that I'm talking about bread here? He said, how is it that you do not understand? But he said this, but beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees in verse 12. Then they understood that he was saying to beware of the, not the leaven of bread, but the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. The teaching. And so as I've been talking about the institutionalized church, You've heard me say this many times, many times, and I'll, and I'll continue to say it. We've got to have a personal living relationship with Jesus for yourself. You can't try to have that vicariously through another person. It has to be a new birth. There has to be a relationship. Jesus said, my sheep know my voice. They follow me. And there's got to be where we know the word for ourselves. I feel sorry for people that just simply want somebody else vicariously to live a Christian life for them on their behalf and to teach them everything and they don't have any uh, you know, personal prayer life they don't study the word for themselves they are a prime candidate to be deceived in these last days you know 
the Apostle Paul commended the Bereans because you know he went to Thessalonica I believe and they really were persecuting but he said about the Bereans he said you know when I came to the Bereans they were open but they studied the word to see if I was telling the truth or not they studied it out and whenever they realized that he was telling them the truth they accepted his message but they didn't just accept it blindly So I wonder out there today, how many places, maybe some of them were just birthed by man and they've never been a lampstand to begin with. But I wonder how many places today, they used to be a lampstand. But it's somewhere down through history, it all became man's control about man and the ways of man that leads to death. You see, Everything became about man's politics. And the result of that is the lampstand was removed and now great darkness has crept in. So here's what I want to close with. Make God's house a house of prayer again. I believe if we'll get back to prayer, number two, seek the pure word of God. Number three, embrace the ministry of the Holy Spirit and His gifts. Number four, don't be closed off to the greater body of Christ. Because you know, River of Life has something that God's doing, but there's other places where God is really moving and doing things, and, and God will teach through other people. And it brings a maturity as we're brought together. Also, develop a strong personal prayer life. And finally, find a place that preaches the truth and flows in the power of God. We need to have getting away from this institutionalized church. But here's the thing that in these latter days, I know from history that historically the Lord has always had to move outside of these institutionalized churches. You know as well as I do, if you study church history, that you're not going to find times where God sent a major revival into an old wineskin. Why? Because it would burst and the wine would spill out. And so God has always had to take and move around the institutionalized church and find a place that was a good wineskin where he could pour out his spirit. And that's something that's really been on my heart because I believe just as he's done that historically, he's going to do it in these last days again. God is going to move with great power, but there's so many places out there that they're not ready for that. And he's not going to move in their midst. They haven't been praying. They haven't been preaching the truth. Their lampstand at some point got removed. And you know what? In these institutionalized churches, as the days continue to get more perilous, as the Bible said it was, there's going to be an exodus of people that are desperate. They're desperate. And they're going to be going places where God's moving. They've heard about God's in their midst over there. And they're going to be forsaking these institutionalized churches. And it makes me think about Revelation 18, where the Bible says, what? Come out from among her, my people. Don't share in her plagues. God's going to be calling his remnant people that really know him out of some of these places their lampstands already been removed but God by his spirit is going to be pulling them out and bringing them to places where it's a true biblical book of Acts Christianity so Lord we thank you for your word today I thank you for what you're doing and Lord I pray that this would be sealed in every life and Lord help us to not be caught up with an institutionalized man-made thing we want to have a relationship with you and we want it to be true biblical book of Acts Christianity. Lord, we thank you and we bless you and we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus.